Please open your Bibles with me this morning to Philippians in chapter 2. Philippians in chapter 2. And if you'd like to borrow a copy of Scripture, if you don't have one with you, we have them underneath the chairs in front of you, somewhere on that row. You can find one that will follow along in the same translation that I'm preaching from. Philippians chapter 2. It's interesting how people describe what happiness is. If you asked 10 different people just in general out in town in southeast Michigan, you might get different definitions. I actually came across some interesting statements about happiness from the world's perspective. A couple of statements for you I thought were interesting. One person put it this way, all I ask is the chance to prove that lots of money can't make me happy. I like that one. Just try it. Someone else put it this way, most people would rather be certain they're miserable than risk being happy. Interesting. Someone else put it this way, when I'm happy, I gain weight and none of my clothes fit. When I'm miserable, I lose weight and fit into all my clothes. So what's the point? Happiness costs you money. Interesting. Someone else put it this way, happiness is no more than good health and a bad memory. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. My kids as teenagers would say, whatever. You know, I don't want to look to the world for wisdom about happiness. I want to look into God's Word. God's Word says things like this in Proverbs chapter 23, verses 15 and 16. This is a father talking to his son to give him wisdom for life. And listen to what this young father says. My son... If your heart is wise, my own heart also will be glad. As a matter of fact, that's my little insertion there. He continues, my inmost being will rejoice when your lips speak what is right. I like that kind of talk about happiness. A father disclosing to his son, you want to know what just makes me happy? It's hearing you have a heart of wisdom. That just causes me to go over the boiling point of happiness. I love that. You know, you can tell a lot about a person by finding out what makes them happy and joyful. Even more, when you can tell how much would it take to cap off all their joy. What is that? You show me that, and I'll show you a lot about that person. You see, the Apostle Paul was one of those people. Paul was a joyful person. We know that just by reading through these four chapters of this letter we call Philippians, written to the church, the believers at Philippi. For example, in chapter 1, verse 4, he, 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 he had a great joy in being in partnership with the Philippian believers in the gospel. Look at verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Look at this, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul says, you want to know what makes me happy? It's being in a gospel partnership with you, church. But it wasn't just his partnership with them that gave him great joy. We see in chapter 2, verse 17, that his suffering on their behalf and for the sake of the gospel, gave him great joy. Verse 17 of chapter 2, But even if I, if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And he also shows his hand in chapter 4, verse 1, as another example, where he says, Just being associated with you brings me joy. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Paul is a joyful person. And it comes out through this whole epistle, but there's also something that this epistle reveals about his joy. As joyful as the apostle Paul was, there was something that just capped it off for him. 
I mean, when he got to this point, he just overflowed with happiness and joy. What is it? What is it that capped it off for him? You'll see this in chapter 2. He says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, and look at the first few words of verse 2, make my joy complete. Paul says, if there's something that caps off the ultimate affection of my joy with regards to you, church at Philippi, it's this. It's knowing that you are unified. He says, that caps off, that makes my joy complete. That's your word, plerao. It means it's full. There's no room for any more joy when we hit that point. When I see that you as a church are bound together with a real unity, my heart explodes with joy. The reformer John Kelvin puts it this way. As he reflects on Paul's love for this church at Philippi and his joy over their unity, John Kelvin writes, how little anxiety Paul had as to himself, provided it only went well with the church. Before Paul's view were tortures, near at hand was the executioner, yet all these things do not prevent his experiencing unmingled joy provided he sees that the churches are in good condition. That was Paul's ultimate joy, was the unity of the church, unity of the local church. And you know, I think deep down we agree here at Calvary. We love our church. Pastors that preceded me reminded you all the time until their faces turned red that Calvary Baptist Church is not made of bricks and mortar and parking lots and grass and green spots parked next to a giant cow. That's not the church. You're the church. And deep down, we know that when a church like ours dwells together in an otherworldly unity, an eternal Unity, that just makes us happy. It makes us full of joy because we know outside of the gospel, it's impossible, right? I mean, if you had the view I had now of the main floor and the balcony, different faces, different families, some of you go to different seats, some of you never do, but I, I've memorized you this morning to a degree. That's okay, good Baptist, right? But I know there's a lot of backgrounds I'm looking at now that are really different. We have different cultures represented in this building right now. We have different skin pigment. We have different levels of education. We have different levels of skill. We have different hobbies. We have different convictions. We have different likes of music. You guys... I'm using that in the Michigan sense. All y'all, that's the southern sense. You're really different from each other. And this doesn't make sense that you can come together, and even when we're scattered throughout southeast Michigan, there's a oneness to us. It's that this great diversity that exists in us here, you add grace to that diversity, and what you get is a unity you can hardly put into words. You know, the New Testament's been trying to tell us that. That it's against the backdrop of our diversity that the gospel produces a unity. Differences create oneness. Differences create oneness. What's beautiful, listen, is what we are together. The New Testament uses different pictures to describe the local church. It uses, for example, in Ephesians 1, 22 to 23, it uses the word that we are a body. Same as in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're a body. The body isn't made up of 
a hundred or two hundred thumbs. A body is made up of diversity that creates a oneness. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 15, the Bible calls the local church, listen, a family. Everyone in your family isn't the same. It's the same in the family of Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 through 3, the Bible calls the local church a flock. Every sheep has a unique name and a unique stubbornness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, we're called a building, not bricks and mortar. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9 as well, we are called a field. The local church is a, a field. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, the Bible calls us a house. And I also love what I read in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. We are called a temple. That's you. We are a field, a body, a family, a flock, a building, a house, and a temple made up of all different types of, of, of individual members that grace brings together. And what happens doesn't make sense to the world. But the differences create a oneness, a unity. It's in, it's in light of this thought that I want to talk to you this morning and the next two mornings, including next week will be a communion service, but I'm still going to address this theme then and, and then two weeks from this morning. It'll be a very unique sermon, to say the least. It will require PowerPoint and your concentration. But our church, by God's grace, has been experiencing growth. And not that we're trying to be a large circus and we're doing dog and pony shows to try to draw the unsaved to something that looks like what they do in their life already. We emphasize the glory of Jesus Christ in the preaching and teaching of his word. And God in his kindness is building our church. I like what John MacArthur says. If we just worry about the depth of our ministry, God will take care of the, the breadth of our ministry as it pleases him. God has been allowing us to see growth and new families coming in, visitors every single week, and even at our men's meeting on Friday. And the church is also growing in the nursery, if you haven't realized that. In light of our recent growth, and in light of our clear mission statement that's on the wall in the lobby, as a church we exist to glorify God by making disciples in a community of grace. And also, thirdly, in light of the current work that's going on, and we're in our second year because it's a careful, important work of revising and updating, um, not changing radically, our constitution and bylaws, not our doctrinal statement, but also our church covenant. The deacons have it in their hand right now, and we're nearing the end of phase three of this process, and you're next. Since we stand at these thresholds right now, it's a good time for us to revisit the biblical reminder that our church is supposed to be and is a community of grace. There's a unity here against the backdrop of variety, and it's beautiful. You say, well, how do we revisit this? Well, let's let Paul answer this as far as unity in the local church. You're in Philippians chapter 2. Go back just a page or so to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. I don't want to read through, I want to read 27 to 30, and you're going to hear Paul pleading for unity in that local church. He says, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that of you that you are standing firm, look at this, in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, 
experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Paul here is pleading for unity in the church, especially as there's an, a worldly external persecution descending on these believers. They must remain tight because of the gospel. Not only does he plea for unity in those verses, but we also see in the first part of chapter 2 that there's a real possibility of this unity. Look at verse 1. If there's, any con- if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, you say, what did he just say? He closes out chapter 1 pleading for unity, and he starts chapter 2 by saying, in essence, unity is the will of Jesus Christ for us, Unity is the fruit of God's love in us. Unity is the result of the Spirit's work through us. And unity is the atmosphere of genuine Christianity around us. That's all verse 1. And from there, in verses 2 through 5, he leads into the reality of our unity. Since there is to be unity, since I'm pleading for it, and since Christ has laid the foundation for it, how does it happen? How can we experience the reality of this unity? And he answers that question in verses 2 through 5. He gives us four keys to biblical unity in the local church. Jot them down this morning. What's the first key? Face the same direction. Face the same direction. Look at verse 2. The opening words... Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Cap off my joy. Make it bubble over. By doing what? By being of the same mind. This is an interesting word. It, it, it means to, to think, to think deeply, to, to hold the same opinion. To be disposed the same way, it means to be like-minded. He says, if there's going to be a unity in the local church, like the local church in Philippi or the local church in Ypsilanti, it has to start with the members facing the same direction. If there are 200 people in a local church, they can't be focused on 200 different directions. They are to be like-minded. Paul is very passionate for this with this church at Philippi. Look at chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect or mature, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. He'll say again in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, calling out two ladies in the church. And a man, a leader, he says, verse 2, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, that's the name of a, of a man in a church. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul is constantly looking at this church as much as they are making him joyful. He's very protective of this unity, that it not go away, that it not be threatened, that it not be crushed. He's calling a huddle here, saying, guard this unity. Guard it. It's a similar passion that he had with the church at Rome. In Romans 15, verses 5 through 6, hear Paul protecting this unity of that local church. He says, May the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's his passion. And boy, that church at Corinth was really struggling with this, weren't they? He writes these words in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I exhort you, brethren. That's not just a polite nudge. That's a shove. I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree 
and that there be no division among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. You say, well, what, what does being of the same mind look like? We're still up there in abstract land. Concretely, what does it mean? What does it look like to be of the same mind, even though we're all different? And it's here, the rest of this verse, that Paul kind of gives us three pictures of what it means to face the same direction. The first picture, look at verse 2, says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. And look at this phrase, maintaining the same love. What's the first picture? The first picture is a common love for each other. You go to this church in Philippi or in Ipsy, and you immediately jump into the deep end of a swimming pool of love. Not a mushy, kumbaya, high-five love. There's something going on there. There's an awareness of each other, a seeking out of each other, and everyone's a recipient of that, no matter how different you are from someone else in that church. It's the same love. Be of the same love, a common love for each other. We Listen, we are not to grade other people to see if they're worthy of our love in this church. We are not to see how similar are they to me. How similar is their background to me? Do they have baggage in their, back, in their, in their past? Is it different from mine? I'm going to grade that before I move towards them in love. Do they struggle with their flesh and they want help and they're trying and they're fighting? Well, until they get things together, I'm not going to really work on this one. We're not allowed to say that. Are they cognitively challenged and different from us? Kind of like, oh, this, I don't know about that. My hands will get dirty if I get involved in that. None of that's going on in a gospel church. There is a common love for each other. St. Augustine put it this way. What does love look like? It has hands to help others. It has feet to hasten to the poor and needy. It has eyes to see misery and want. Ears to hear the sighs and sorrows of men. That is what love looks like. And Augustine is right. You say, well, how, how can we love that way? How can we love that way? Well, the answer is pretty, pretty simple. Because we've all experienced a love like that. It's called the gospel. If we were waiting around, if God were waiting around until we were worthy to be saved, all of us wouldn't be going to hell someday. We'd already be in hell. We've been loved by a father when we weren't loving him. As a matter of fact, we can only love now because he first loved us. We've been loved by an amazing love. And I say to you, my friend, if you're here and you have never experienced the love of Jesus Christ, you never experienced the love of God the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ, who died for your sin, rose from the dead, ascended to his Father's right hand where he is today, and he's offering to you the gift of eternal life, then I have some amazing news for you. You can be loved like that today. Confess your sin and believe him. John writes and records in John 15 the words of our Lord in the upper room right before the betrayal. When Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that one day lay down his life for his friends. That's how come you can find love or should be able to find love in a church like ours. Because you've been loved. But beyond that, you also have something called the Spirit indwelling you. And the Spirit brings all his fruit to every believer. And you have every fruit of the Spirit in seed form, whether you want to admit it or not. And you and I have a responsibility to know them, grow them, and show them. And one of them is what? Agape, love. That's why love shows up in churches like this. It's, it's a true evidence of your salvation. As we'll hear in our First John series on these Sunday nights this winter. We're going to study verses like First John 3.14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. See, I don't like that. Your argument's with Scripture on that one. You know, of all the tests in 1 John, the one about loving other believers has the most data. 
Sinclair Ferguson, one of my favorite writers, puts it this way, if Christ is not ashamed to indwell them, I am not slow to embrace them. So there's three pictures of what this like-mindedness looks like. First of all, there's a common love for each other, but there's a second picture he gives us in verse 2. It's a common effort, effort towards one goal. A common effort towards one goal. It says in chapter 2, verse 2, united in spirit. United in spirit. What does that mean? It means to be in one accord. It, you, can, you can translate it if you're forced to this way. It's to be one-souled about something. There's one thing that excites both of you, no matter how different you are. What is that one thing that excites us here at Calvary? I pray it's the glory of God as we grow as a community of grace by making disciples who know how to worship, who know how to serve, who know how to witness, and who know how to disciple. I hope that that's our tuning fork. I hope that that's what creates our one-souledness. You may have recalled the old Charlie Brown cartoon in the newspaper. Do you remember Charlie Brown and do you remember newspapers? And the Sunday cartoons. Well, there's one featuring Lucy and Linus. And they're fighting over the remote control to the television. And finally, Lucy does what Lucy does best. She says to Linus, look at me. Why should we watch what I want to watch? These five fingers or why we're going to watch what I want to watch. And Linus gave her the control. And then the last panel has Linus looking at his hand saying, now why can't you guys get, get organized like that, you know? There's something that organizes us to make us united in spirit, and it's God's glory through disciple-making. But there's a third picture in here that helps us understand what this unity is, it, Thirdly, we see a common drive in our minds. It says at the end of verse 2, intent on one purpose. What is that? That's a common drive in our minds. In other words, there, there's something that's fueling our passion, our like-mindedness. There's, 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 there's input coming from somewhere that unites us in spite of our differences. What is that one source that gives data to the individual believers that makes us want the same thing? Well, your list is going to be real short on the answers. We are all reading the same instruction manual. We all prize and treasure the reading of God's word. We love the, the passion that we find in Joshua 1.9, just dealing with the first part of the Old Testament. It's all they had. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you will be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. And we say, Amen, Joshua. And now we have not just the rest of the Old Testament, we have the New Testament we here at Calvary Baptist Church in our generation, listen, are stewards of the full and closed canon of Scripture. That's what's giving us one intent, one drive. This is maybe one of the reasons why I challenge you every year, the first Sunday morning of every calendar year, to read your Bible that year. It's not a legalism. We need you reading from the same manual we're reading from so that our oneness and unity is fed it's why our 4D men are reading the Bible. It's why our ladies' ministry studies the Bible. It's why our youth groups at Camp Barakal right now, listening to a speaker who, according to Pastor Michael, was off to a great start because he was in Scripture. He wasn't just telling stories and jokes. He's, he has a very sound agenda for the teens at camp this week. There's a couple of us that have tickets and reservations for Shepherd's Conference at John MacArthur's church in three weeks. It's called Shepherd's Conference. There'll be about 3,000 pastors and church leaders there. And I, I try to go every couple of years since the mid-90s. And it's me, Pastor Michael, Dave Dietz, and Carrie Zellner. We're pretty excited about it. 
Um, I love the singing, I love the preaching, I love the workshops, and I just want to watch these three guys experience their first Shepherds Conference. But there's one thing I'm not looking forward to, and that's the ride from LAX airport to the hotel. Ernie, remember that one? Ernie and I went together. It's only about a 40-mile drive, 30-mile drive maybe, but it might take two hours because of the L.A. traffic. It is, as Ernie would say, very, very unfun. You might have at some points in the L.A. interstate there between LAX Airport and Sun Valley, where Grace Community Church is, you might have six lanes, at some points even seven lanes, going one direction, 12 to 14 lanes across, and it's a parking lot. It's just crawling. I don't like that part, and I haven't missed that part, and I'll have an attitude when I'm in that part again, because the rental car is in my name. I've got to do it. But one thing I can be thankful for, for the six or seven lanes that I'm inching along in, and it's this, I can at least be thankful they're going the same direction. You know, sometimes not only interstates, but local churches can get messy. And there needs to be encouragement and comfort and confrontation because the church is church. But at least we're all facing the same direction. You know, Peter gets in on this a little bit when he writes in 1 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So what's the first key to unity? The reality of unity for a church like Calvary Baptist Church? Face the same direction. Because when you face the same direction, you see the same realities, right? And that, gives us this, that leads us to the second key. The second key for our unity here at Calvary is fight the same foes. Fight the same foes. Look at verse 3 for this. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. You want to experience unity at Calvary Baptist Church? Fight the same foes. And, and this one verse, verse 3, says that there are two enemies that are always a risk to a local church like ours. Two enemies. What's the first enemy? Let me see if I can word these enemies as a statement. The first enemy in any church like ours towards our unity, our gospel unity, is this. Simply, my way. It's got to be done my way. And you see that at the beginning of verse 2. Make my joy complete. I'm sorry, verse 3. Do nothing from, here it is, selfishness or empty conceit. Selfishness or empty conceit. Can see this selfishness here is talking about I want things to go the way I want them to go and does anyone else agree with me? Then step over here and stand by me. That might work on talk radio or at a press conference. That's not how it works in a church. The church would call that faction. The church would call that rivalry. The Bible would call that a party spirit, a respecter of persons. It's team building. It's a post-service service. It's selfishness. It's an interesting Greek word, erytheia. Er erytheia. I don't usually read to you out of technical books in my library, but I'm going to right now. This, verse, this word is so shocking that even the, the um, linguistic key to the Greek New Testament by Carl Rogers, he has to stop being technical for a moment and just tell you how this, world, this word for selfishness developed. He writes, The word is related to a noun which originally meant, listen, a day laborer, servant. And it was used especially of those cutting and binding wheat or of those who were spinners or weavers. But the word later denotes an attitude of those who worked for wages. Particularly, it denoted a self-seeking pursuit of even a political office by unfair means. 
And then this word continued to develop. It came to be used of party squabblers, of the jockeying for position and the intrigue behind place and power. And finally, it meant selfish ambition. The ambition which has no conception of service, but only aimed at profit and power. Well, you know, Paul would list in Galatians 5 the deeds of the flesh. I want you to see, as I read the works of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh, how many of these would be fueled by selfishness? Galatians 5 The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, and envying. Wow. We usually get mad at the first couple, right? Immorality. And we forget the big swell in the middle of the list. This is what was plaguing the church at Corinth. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12.20, I fear, lest when I come to you, I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. Lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, Selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, and tumults. It says here in verse 3, does it say in your copy of Scripture, let some things be done from selfishness or empty conceit? No, there's no something there. It's nothing. That includes goals. That includes programs. Efforts at ministry, nothing. And this includes only participating in ministries that you control, which is a boycott of other ministries. This word conceit literally means an empty glory. There's nothing there to really glory about. It just looks impressive. There's nothing there. It means a hollow opinion. The opinion might sound authoritative, but there's nothing there. Empty praise. People may praise you, but there's really no reason for it. It's that word conceit. This is a unity, yes, in verse 3, it's a unity centered on self. As someone once said, it's easy to to spot a well-informed person. Their views coincide with yours, right? Paul is loving this church at Philippi by speaking so frankly to them. As he does with the church in, filled with Galatian believers in Galatians 5:26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So you have to fight the same foe. It's my way is the first foe. The name of the second foe that you fight and you're fighting the same foe is me first. You have my way is the only right way and then me first. We see, where do you get that? Well, verse 3. With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than who? Than yourselves. This humility of mind thing, and, and right down to this, this Greek here, this is not found as a virtue in Greek prior to the New Testament writings. The virtue of that day was to usurp yourself, some Commentators and scholars believe that the Apostle Paul himself helped coin this word as a virtue. He'll use it in Ephesians 4.2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, and the same concept in Colossians 3.12, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. See, how do you do that? You esteem others. You esteem others. In other words, you weigh the facts and then reach a judgment. First about you, and if you have a right understanding of yourself, then you'll have the right understanding of others. 
We fight the same foes. We are not each other's foes in a local church like ours. But we are fighting the same two foes together. The same two foes. Me first in my way. J. Oswald Sanders, a great devotional writer, put it this way, Nothing is more distasteful to God than self-conceit. This first and fundamental sin is essence, and in essence aims at enthroning self at the expense of God. If we are honest, when we measure ourselves by the life of our Lord who humbled himself, even to death on a cross, we cannot but be overwhelmed with the tawdriness and shabbiness and even the vileness of our own hearts. He's right. So once we subdue the same foe, we have a clear look at those around us. And this leads to the third key. The third key. Form the same priority. Form the same priority. This is in verse 4. Look at verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You know what verse 4 is? It's a call to me, it's a call to you to have a race towards being a servant. Who's going to win this race in our church family at this event? At this gathering, between our Sundays when we're spread out, who's going to win the race of serving each other? You know, we got a big game coming up next Sunday, the Super Bowl. Okay? I know I'm not supposed to say it's in the pulpit, but you're thinking about it, so I might as well say it. I'm not excited about either team. The right team didn't make it. We can talk about that one later. But we'll still watch. I'll watch the game. I will. I have to. I have, I'll have pizza. you got to have football with that. And those teams are spending this these two weeks since the NFC and AFC championship games, talking about how they're going to beat each other and talking about how their defense will crush the other offense and, and vice versa. And, and they're just already playing the game two weeks before the game happens. But I promise you one thing, next Sunday, once the game happens, as it's going on, there will be a few rare moments during the game where both teams agree with each other. You know when that is? When there's a fumble. When there's a fumble, both teams are going to agree that we need to get to the ball. There can be agreement even in a Super Bowl for a moment. How much more true is that of the church? This agreement is not natural. This agreement to being, to out-serving everyone else around me is a beautiful grace in a church that takes Christ working in your life to do. Because left to ourselves, we're selfish. 1 Corinthians 3.3, 3, you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? Meaning with outside the gospel. Being a servant, let me tell you this, being a servant to each other in our local church takes aggression. It takes initiative it takes self-starting. It takes you looking on your screen, so to speak, and making sure you're picking up on all the, the Bluetooth signals that are available and tuning into them. And not for your sports apps and all that. I'm talking for the needs in other people's lives. Your antenna is up. You say, well, how do I... Okay, that was... I, I understand what you're saying. How, how do I do that? Just think of yourself as you serve others. What is most meaningful and what resonates more with you when someone serves you out of initiative, not having to be asked? I'll give you a couple of examples. You like relief from a pressure every once in a while, don't you? You like wisdom for a decision every once in a while, right? You like company when you're facing a storm, don't you? You like joy when you are experiencing a mountaintop, right? You like a hand when you're in a task. You appreciate resources when you're facing a need. So you do that. Don't wait and see what might show up that you can serve. Anticipate and initiate. Let's have a contest at Calvary Baptist Church 
to see who can serve the most. As Ken Collier at the Wilds Christian Camp says over and over, thinking in his mind that scene where Jesus washed his disciples' feet, Ken Collier says, the guy, the lady who dies with the dirtiest towel wins. I like that. So, what are the keys, according to Paul, for this reality of unity in the church? First of all, you're going to face the same direction. You're going to fight the same foe. You're going to form the same priority of servanthood. You say, well, okay, I think I got the notes now. I understand that. I got it on paper, but what does it look like? Are there any pictures to this? And that's the fourth key. Follow the same example. Look at verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. That in the Greek is going to be a plural you. If each person here is saying, I want to contribute to unity, how do I do that? By being like Christ in his humility. He's your tuning fork. He's a, not just a wood picture, a, a wood, wood press picture. He's a living picture, a high-definition picture or video of what this looks like. Jesus is your true north to the unity of this church family. You say, well, what did he do? Look at verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You want to be a guardian of the unity of Calvary Baptist Church? Be him. Be the one who says in John in Matthew 20, verse 28, the Son of Man didn't come to be served. But he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So, in light of the recent growth that God has blessed our church with and is blessing our church with, in light of our together trying to understand and live out our mission statement of glorifying God by making disciples in a community of grace, in light of the fact that uh, 12 years since the last revision, the pastors, and after them, a revision committee, and after them, the deacons, for two years, have been pressing into this. In view of that and what's coming up with you as a church family, let's guard this real, this very real unity against the backdrop of our diversity. Face the same direction, fight the same foes, form the same priority, and follow the same example. And by the way, who's responsible for you? I mean, who's responsible for you? It's not your Sunday school teacher. Will the pastors have to answer for you to some degree that I still don't understand, but it's going to happen? I read at the end of Hebrews, yes, but I can't make you do anything. I'll answer for you. So it's not your Sunday school teacher, it's not your pastors, it's not your deacons, it's not your friends, it's not your enemies. Who's responsible for you? You are. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, 18, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So maybe this afternoon we might need to do some community of grace work or we can call it homework. Ask the, those closest to us, do I need to turn? Have I kind of gone 
isolation in this church, isolated with what I'll do and who I'll serve? Have I developed a need to declare war on the the right enemy, not the wrong enemy? Have I gotten away from prioritizing the posture of a servant, no matter who I'm facing or avoiding? Do I need to refocus on Christ? You have to believe, brothers and sisters, you have to believe that the reality of the unity of CBC is created by Christ, but it will be incessantly assaulted by the evil one. Mark it down. Mark it down. We we protect it. We treasure it. And only then will we have the sweet aroma and an awareness of God's presence in our midst and his blessing. John Piper, I'll close with this. This is from his book, Desiring God, kind of his his main book. And he has a neat illustration about music. I'm not a musician, so I need to let his words speak. He writes, There is a different kind of unity enjoyed by the joining of diverse counterparts than is enjoyed by the joining of two things just alike. He continues, When we all sing the same melody line, it is called unison, which means one sound. But when we unite diverse lines of soprano and alto and tenor and bass, we call that harmony. And everyone who has an ear to hear knows that something deeper in us is touched by great harmony than by mere unison. Yeah. Unity against the background of diversity. Differentness creates oneness because of grace. Maybe that's why Paul closed out his epistle, his second epistle to the Corinthians, with finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Father, that's our prayer as a church family. You've been so kind to this, this church that we call Gathered Calvary Baptist Church for over 80 years. But the unity and future of this church is no stronger than the current generation. And I pray that we will find in our midst, on our watch, in this generation, a groundswell of gospel unity, reaffirmation, and practice. Help us to face the same direction.